Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Going for the Green with Daily Roto. I'm Drew Dinkmeyer. Uh, I'm in the host chair this week along with Colin Drew. We're here to recap the PGA Championship, talk more uh, DFS plays in the Wyndham Championship. Uh, but before we, we get into the golf, we did want to note that uh, NFL season is right around the corner. Uh, Daily Roto has been making huge improvements to our product on the NFL side. We've upgraded our optimizer in a big way. Um, I recorded a tutorial this morning that we'll get out at some point this week. I know we're going to open up uh, the tools to be able to have uh, some free access for people that want to play around with the tools during the preseason and, and get a taste so they can decide if they want to sign up. We've got free preseason content going on, Colin, that you've been heading up. We've got game simulations and prop betting tools for those of you who are interested in the sports betting side. So a lot of upgrades for uh, NFL season with the Daily Roto NFL package. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be an awesome season. I'm, I'm super excited about the optimizer. Just being able to do everything in one, one shop is going to be big and kind of all the flexibility and customizability you can want. So it's really easy to build cash game and GPP teams for a casual user. But if you're a super sophisticated user who likes to do a lot of complex stacking, you can do all that stuff too. So that's going to be great. And then we also have the new show on the Fantasy Sports Network that's going to debut on Wednesday, the DFS Dish with Daily Roto. It's going to be a little bit different. So this this podcast is obviously focused just on golf. But in that show, we're going to talk about kind of all different things, DFS. A heavy NFL emphasis to start, I'm sure, just because of the time of year. But um, it'll be another great opportunity for people um, to interact with us in a free capacity that aren't currently subscribers. And uh, it'll be on video and audio, so they get to see your pretty face as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that's a, a big selling point, but uh, we will have the DFS dish on, on Wednesday afternoons, and uh, that'll be available for people to, like you said, catch out for free, uh, get a little taste of the type of uh, analysis that we provide at Daily Roto and the, and the type of ways we, we look at things. So myself, Ricky Sanders, who we just brought onto the team, Mike Leone, uh, I know, Colin, you'll make some appearances as well. We'll, we'll kind of rotate through uh, some, some guest spots on that show with, with Lou Pellegrino, who's going to be hosting for us. We're really excited about that. But let's turn our attention to the golf side of things. Um, let's talk about the PGA Championship. I know for me, it was a really frustrating week. Um, I was really heavy on three guys in particular. Paul Casey, which was a disaster. Patrick Cantlay, which was a mild frustration like he finished fine but he just didn't score very well and then the third was tony Finau, who did the exact opposite scored like a maniac um but barely made the cut it was a total roller coaster and because i was heavy on other guys in the 9k range and those guys who were like modestly chalky i had to take some stands so i was like really underweight brooks which obviously ended up being a huge mistake because he just seems to have this switch that he flips on in majors um, and I just didn't, I, I had like the cheap guys that were low owned that were up near the leaderboard, like Daniel Berger and Rafa Cabrera Bayo and Tyrell Hatton. I just didn't have enough Brooks. So it was a really, really big losing week for me. Uh, Colin, how'd the week end up for you? Yeah. Also a losing week for me. Didn't have uh, much Brooks. Um, not sure if I had any on DraftKings. And so that was, it was tough. It was the type of thing where I had some, some live outs going into Sunday and, um, all I needed was Brooks to falter a little bit, and it looked like he was going to for a while. I mean, purely from a golf fan perspective, it ended up being a good major. Um, started out not as exciting just because it's the PGA Championship, and it felt like the course was going to play easy. But by the time the back nine rolled around on Sunday, I don't think anybody cared once Tiger was in contention. And uh, at that point, the DFS rooting interests were kind of aside, and it was it was pretty good just – 
theater from a golf fan perspective to watch the way that the crowd reacted to Tiger getting into contention. And then obviously Brooks, what he's done in majors is pretty incredible. Um, Ben talked a lot about in the media, but stringing together these major wins without any, you know, without many other wins in traditional tour events. Um, Some of that, you know, his long-term data and maybe some of the reason he didn't pop as much in our model is just because he did have that injury that bothered him and maybe that weighs him down a little bit. And it's one of those things that I just need to remember to pin for certain golfers is uh, when they have sort of some stuff that's buried in their long-term data that you think is clearly below what they're actually like as a player. Yeah, it's it's a little bit tricky too. Uh, It seems like he he plays because, I mean, the way he talks about it, he seems to play at a different way or a different approach at majors than he does at other events where he's a little bit more tactical in terms of trying to take advantage of his opportunities and really focus on not making double is basically what he said. Like just take double out of the equation, know that you're going to make some bogeys and it's okay. And I think as a guy, it's weird because you think of him as such a good scorer because he's a good putter. He's long and he's got pretty good iron play as well, but he's a guy that seems to do kind of his best work in the toughest conditions. Um, we will not have tough conditions this week at the Wyndham Championship at Sedgefield Country Club. Uh, par 70, 7,100 yards, a little bit over. It was the 15th easiest course on tour last year with a minus 20 winning score, uh, minus 22, in fact, with Henrik Stenson out, uh, out, outgunning Ali Schneider-Jans, who finished uh, 21 under in second place. Um, this is a weird course because it's got a lot of eagles on it, but it's only a par 70. So you've got two short part fives. You've got kind of this birdie fest right before the FedEx Cup. You've got all these guys who normally wouldn't be playing the FedEx, this, this final tournament before the FedEx Cup that are playing it because they're on the bubble. Guys like Sergio Garcia, Shane Lowry, um, like pretty high-end golfers. The, the field is a little bit deeper than usual. It's, not, it's certainly not a field of a WGC or a major event, but it's also not a field that's like your, your normal run-of-the-mill uh, event that's the appetizer to the big main course, which in this case would be the FedEx playoffs. Yeah, it's weird. It's I guess it's like a stars and scrubs field from a PGA yeah. perspective. You kind of have the bubble guys, and then you have the other guys who are playing because um, you know they, they might be clearly in for the first event, but they want to build up a little bit of a buffer. So I think that's some of what's going on. Um, the eagle thing really threw me off when I was looking at it. Third most eagles on tour last year, which you never really expect from par seventy. And that just means tons of DraftKings scoring, right? Anytime you're going to get um, an easy scoring environment with birdies and you throw in the Eagles into that mix, tons of DK scoring. In general, I think that means balanced roster builds are probably the right way to go. Um, it might sound a little counterintuitive given what we said about the field, but you really need to get six of six guys through the cut this week. And you need to focus on optimizing your ability to do that because you know if someone's playing the weekend, they're going to be making birdies. So um, that's one of the macro things I think that the tournament impacts. Uh, I try not to buy too much into the FedEx Cup point narratives or you know motivation angles. Kind of figure anyone who's decided to show up this week is motivated in one way or another. And so um, I don't dig too heavily into that. I think you just kind of trust that the guys who are here are going to be trying to play well and then just build rosters as you would normally. Yeah, I mean, theoretically, these guys who are on the bubble have been on the bubble all year. So they, they, if they had the ability to kick it into another gear, you would think they would have been trying to do that a few events ago. Um, Sergio, you know, let's try to make a cut. You know, it's been a few months. Um, I'm still bitter. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the course fit this week. We know that it's a course that 
there's going to be a lot of birdies at. And as a result, if you look at Data Golf's you know historical event um, database and you pull up the Wyndham Championship, you see unusually a little bit more weight on putting uh, compared to the normal tour average because basically you got to keep up with every. People are going to be making birdies at a high rate, so you got to be keeping up. You got to have a good putter this week. And I know you noted in our in our show notes that last year Jason Duffner and Ryan Moore, who are two of the guys that you think of historically as like really good approach guys, really good see the green guys, but just haven't had great putting uh, stretches for their career. They both uh, were, you know, at the very top of the leaderboard and strokes uh, gained tee to green, but didn't even finish in the top 15 last year. Yeah, that's definitely not something you usually expect. Um, typically, there's a very high correlation between who's leading the field and strokes gained tee to green and the, the top of the leaderboard. Obviously, to win, you're going to have to get hot with the putter most events, but Definitely seems like the strokes gained putting, um, at least as far as like descriptive traits, mattered a lot more at this event than others. I didn't do a lot of research into whether this event, like if good putters putt well here or if like bad putters putt well. So there's kind of that angle lingering. Um, I know we're not as big on course fit or breaking down individual strokes um, and characteristics as some of the other sites out there are. Um, so we're focused more on the the players' long-term and short-term scoring averages um, adjusted for the field strength, but I think that's worth noting for the course fit. The other thing uh, that isn't noted in our notes, but I, I noted when I was doing the research, is that actually had some of the narrowest fairways on tour. Um, but again, the scoring so easy, so it kind of it, it's not like you're playing the U.S. Open where it's long and narrow and you have thick and penalizing rough conditions. It didn't seem to matter too much one way or another. So. Um, all in all, I think that, you know, it, there's kind of some clear class at the top of the field and then some really good value in the middle. And I think you can kind of focus on, on those things. Um, and it'll just be interesting to see how the ownership shapes up with some guys with that compelling course history. Yeah, when we look at the course history, um, you know, data golf tracks based on a course history index based on their score relative to expectation at the course. And some of the names at the top of the course history leaderboard for, for data golf, uh, some are small sample size, like Kevin Nas only got 12 rounds here, but he's at the top. Webb Simpson is second with 32 rounds here, uh, almost two strokes uh, better um, than, than expected. Um, but the other names on the list, I can't like, I can't see a common theme. You've got guys like Matsuyama, you've got Bill Haas, you've got uh, Patrick Reed, you've got Brant Snedeker. I mean, those guys are all different types of players. Some guys like Hideki's a really good tee to green approach game player when he's right. Haas is kind of more of an around the greens guy that's very, very good that way. Um, Patrick Reed is a guy who's been kind of around the greens and, and not particularly accurate off the tee. Um, Snedeker is more of the guy who you think of as like short courses, but then like can get really, really hot with the putter. You've also got Charles Howell III, Jason Duffner here. It's just a, it's a really a mixed bag. I would say I don't see any like pure bombers um, at the top of the course history index, but it's just, it's, there's not a particular style that really stands out to me. Yeah. And I think I would agree with that. Uh, the other thing I was note, I was noting was, so Webb Simpson does have really strong course history here, but I think some of the other guys um, that have had high-end finishes kind of, 
I don't want to say they did it out of nowhere, but like Henrik Stenson had two missed cuts and a withdrawal at this event before winning last year. So <laughs> if, if you were having this conversation last year, you're talking about how Stenson has a terrible track record here, but he obviously would have been one of the highest rated players in the field as far as, you know, his win probabilities. If you don't account for course fit and he came out and won. And so I think that right there just, just shows one of the errors of leaning too heavily onto course history um, Matsuyama was kind of the same situation, had a strong finish, but before that had weak finishes. And so I think in general, trying not to lean on course fit or course history very much at all. If anything, I think it, it just aggregates ownership. I know we were talking a little bit about Daniel Berger and how he's kind of like the poster child for like what <laughs> weird things course history can do to DFS fantasy players. Yeah, he's up at 9300 this week. So now that he's priced up, you got to play him. I mean, that's the way the DFS industry treats him. I joked about this last week on the pod that he would be, you know, sub 3% owned. I think he was 1% owned. Um, it did not look good through the first nine holes, where I think he was six over through the first nine holes, something like that. Ended up rallying to not only make the cup, but had a huge weekend as well. And I believe backdoored like a top 15 uh, for Daniel Berger. He's only 9300 this week. I will be interested in him again. Uh, but you mentioned kind of in the lead up when talking about these birdie fests, you generally want to go with some more balanced roster builds to try to up your six to six percentage because the value of those extra rounds on the weekend are so strong. Um, what are some of the, you know, the, the, the balance type builds, what price range are you starting with this week? Cause I noticed like looking at the, the pricing on DraftKings, I think the nine Ks has some good value, but there's some guys in the eight Ks that I think are going to be bad chalk. And it's it's actually a nice kind of reprieve because the last few weeks I feel like we've come on here and it looks like ownership projections are kind of agreeing with our projections and it's tough to take stands on guys you already like. Um, this week it feels like there's going to be a little bit more inefficiency. Yeah, I hope that's the case. I hope that's especially the case with the value players. That's where you really like to see it. Um, I think like the six to six probability matters a lot. And I think the way to maximize that is to, to go balanced. And I think you can actually fade the entire $10,000 range. If you want to optimize your ability to get all six golfers through the weekend, which should maximize your fantasy points. Um, and so I definitely think for cash games, uh, smaller field GPPs that going balanced is the right way to go. Um, I think for large field, you can obviously, you're always going to have to have the winner. The more expensive guys are most likely to win. So there's always a reason to justify paying up in tournaments, especially if there ends up being leverage. But it, it's just, there's not a, a Dustin Johnson in the field this week like there was at the RBC Canadian Open, where we felt like he was such a dominant favorite that even at the highest price and high ownership, he was still worth paying up for. You're not really going to get somebody who has, I think he had like 62% odds to T20 that week. We don't have anyone like that this week. Stenson's our highest. He's still below 50% to T20. Um, so I, I think fading the entire 10K range is a plausible strategy. I, I'm not going to do it in all of my lineups, but I definitely think if I was only building one lineup that that's the way I would go and just start below $10,000 and look for leverage pivots if I can find them. The old Leone strategy from last week that he employed in the Millie Maker, and for the most part successfully last week, I know Mike had a profitable week in the Millie Maker, fading the entire 10K plus range. Uh, this week, as you mentioned, the higher end of the, the pricing spectrum, you've got Webb Simpson, uh, Hideki Matsuyama, Henrik Stenson, all over 11K. 
Then over 10K, you've got Brant Snedeker, Rafa Cabrera Bayo, uh, and Shane Lowry. Some of these names were guys who, you know, had a really good la- week last week at the PGA Championship, like Cabrera Bayo and Shane Lowry, that I kind of wonder if their pricing would be anywhere near this without that one event finish. Um, and then some of these guys are guys who have been long-term stalwarts in Hideki Matsuyama and Henrik Stenson, but have not had the the great recent performance by any means. I know Hideki, it seems like you get like two good rounds out of Hideki every event and then one really frustrating round uh fortunately of late they've been on the weekend so he's at least been grinding out cuts uh but you haven't seen those high-end finishes from from hideki of late if you were to play this range in tournaments because it sounds like this is a range that's kind of off limits for you from a cash game or even perhaps in some of the three max uh, single entry tournaments who are the guys in this range that you would gravitate towards i would at the end of the day, it's all going to come down to ownership. Right now, I would gravitate towards Hideki and Stenson um, because it seems like Webb's more consistent course history here is gathering more buzz. It it was un- and I guess also his you know performance last week was strong. His performance in the majors and at the Players this year has been strong, um, finishing inside the top twenty five of each of those. So maybe all of that is leading to the Webb buzz if. If he's going to be higher owned than Stenson and Hideki, then I definitely would play them in this range. One thing about this range that's interesting is there are a lot of guys priced up here this week, which I didn't really expect to see. I thought maybe we'd see three guys priced up here, like Webb, Hideki, Henrik, and then a clear break before the other guys. That's a little closer to what we saw at the RBC Canadian Open. So we have six guys um, who are priced above 10K. Right now, my ownership projections have them totaling more than 90% of ownership, and I just don't see that actually happening. Um, and so I could see people going more balanced because some of the names here aren't comfortable to pay up on. And if, if that does happen, then that means that at least a couple of these guys are going to go off at single-digit ownership percentages. So whoever ends up at single-digit ownership is definitely going to be interested in in GPPs from a leverage perspective. I just I don't have a great read on who that could be right now, so I would have to lean on Hideki and Henrik. Yeah, just kind of looking at the range from a skill set perspective, though, one of these is not like the other guy to me would be either Shane Lowry or Brant Snedeker. Um, I think in terms of, you know, consistent long-term adjusted scoring, Rafa Cabrera-Bayo has been, you know, a top 30-ish golfer in the world, probably. Henrik Stenson's been, you know, a top 10, top 15-ish guy. Hideki, same thing. Webb kind of in that top 20-ish range. Um, Lowry and Sneds have been more like top 50 or 60-ish type guys. Um, So they feel like skill-wise, they're a little bit of a lesser bet for me. Um, If you go down into the 9,000 range, you've also got some unusual names kind of mixed around. I mean, I, I, we have, you know, Neiman, who obviously has kind of come up on tour and been a, a great story as a rookie in his first year. But then you've got like Billy Horschel and then Russell Henley, Daniel Berger, Sergio Garcia, which is just so weird to see Sergio Garcia in this price range, uh, but so deserving given the poor play this year. And, and Ryan Moore, um, if you're going balanced from a cash game perspective or a single entry perspective and you're starting in, in this 9K range, who are some of the names that you're targeting? Are you targeting multiple names from this range, or is is one like an anchor, and then you're moving more into the eights? Yeah, I'll, I'll give me all of them. No, I, I <laughs> think it's a good range. Um, I guess the only other thing I did want to say real quickly about the range above, a lot of times we do focus on DraftKings pricing because I think most of our volume is there, but definitely not all of it. Um, I, I've been enjoying the FanDuel golf product. I like the, the pick six product for the majors and the salary cap product I've been playing on a weekly basis as well. Um, not as much volume as DraftKings, but 
Um, if you are playing on FanDuel, then, you know, a guy like Shane Lowry is a much better play on FanDuel than he is on DraftKings. And so definitely take the caveat. All this is with pricing in mind. You know, Lowry is a bit overpriced for us on DK. Uh, I think we've still got him inside the top 15 players in this field, though, and he's definitely a really strong value on FanDuel. As far as the 9K range, um, trying to whittle it down, you know, if, for just a, one lineup, um, I think what you're trying to do is just figure out the the risk. Uh, Berger was one of the guys that had the most risk. I know his upside was there last week. You mentioned the struggle to start the round. He even came out on Twitter, mentioned that the wrist is still bothering him, and it was something that he was kind of fighting through and that he was proud of his finish and the way things went. Um, and so... I, I think that's probably enough to get me off of a guy like Berger in cash games, just the fact that he felt like there was still some discomfort there. Um, so I think someone like Russell Henley or Ryan Moore would be the guys that I was most comfortable with in cash games. Um, probably Moore is the, the guy that feels safest. I know the putting might not be there, um, and it needs to be there if he's going to contend this week, but feels that the ball striking has been really consistent, especially in strokes gained approach. If you look at the strokes gained trends there, a lot of outlier upside performances. Um, and so maybe the, the tie break there goes to more over Henley, who I really like this week. He just hasn't played this event as much. Yeah, I when you when you mentioned the characteristics of the course and you talked about it not being super long and you talked about it being a little bit more favorable towards putting because the birdie, uh, birdie or better percentage mattering, I thought of Russell Henley like immediately. Um, he's one of the few guys from like a tee to green perspective that we play pretty consistently that is also a really good putter. I mean, there's there's him, there's Stricker, there's not a lot of other guys. Usually we're playing kind of all the guys who aren't great putters who are just really, really solid tee to green. So Henley kind of st- stood out to me. Um, for me, Sergio, I think it's, you know, it's r- relative to his historical production. It's such a good price, but relative to what he's done of late, it is maddening. Um, I would take him out of the cash game conversation for me, but I would still keep him in that conversation for like three max single entry GPP builds because I still think people are going to shy away. Um, And while he has been missing cuts and he's been frustrating, he hasn't been like disastrously missing cuts. He's been right around the number pretty much every time. And it seems like he's been hunting that number in a Ryan Palmer-ish way the last few months. Um, What's your take on Sergio? It's it's tough, man. It's tough to figure out what to do. Kind of kind of crazy. We're like questioning whether or not to not hit the lock button on Sergio at 9,200 in this field, but it's just been it's been pretty bad for 18 months, and it's kind of it feels like it's a fair price. Um, I feel like there's going to be some ownership, but not crazy. Definitely going to be a guy that I have in my player pool. Um, I could I could see myself possibly including him in a cash game lineup, depending how those builds go. Definitely will have him in some three max, but. I don't think I'm comfortable enough to go 100%. Um, other guy that was pretty interesting is Neiman in Strange. And one of the things that Data Golf puts together for us is betting probabilities. And they offer um, probabilities for winning top five, top 10, top 20 to make the cut, a bunch of different things. And Neiman was actually fourth in their probabilities as far as likelihood to win this event, but was, I believe, 13th in his made cut <laughs> probability. So that's pretty interesting um, just because a lot of times you see more correlation there where maybe guys are a spot or two off, but that's a pretty, pretty drastic difference. Um, He's going to be popular this week, no doubt. I think there's good reason why. Um, I I guess I'll just see if the ownership is like 
20% or so, I'll probably end up with a little bit. I, I'm just curious if it's um, if he'll become popular enough that it creeps up closer to 30% if people really do um, decide to go with a more balanced roster construction. He is quite the conundrum because I would say that the finished probabilities model captures kind of the upside-downside volatility of Neiman because when he's made cuts this year, he's been in contention. Uh, that typically is the profile of a GPP play. Typically, profiles of GPP plays, you when they're high-owned, you fade, and when they're low-owned, you, you load up, kind of. Um, the challenge here is that this is also, if it's going to be a birdie fest, this dude makes birdies. He makes a lot of birdies. Even last week when he made the cut at the PGA, um, I think you know he made he made like 17 birdies, something like that. So I think the course fit would seem to be one that is in his favor, but the ownership is one that's a little bit of a nuisance. Um, I think we've talked about how the finished probabilities model are a little bit more optimistic on him than the fantasy scoring model. So if you wanted to, as a subscriber, kind of bump Neiman a little bit there. I feel like I'm going to be copping out on Neiman and just kind of neutral weighting the field um, and taking some stands on other guys uh, is my initial lean. But getting back to Sergio, if if five months ago you had told me that Sergio Garcia was going to be basically right around the same price as Harold Varner III and Siwoo Kim, um, and I was not excited to play him, I would have really wondered what the heck was going on. And, and and that's basically where we are. So we can move into that AK range where Harold Varner III, uh, who is projecting early on in your ownership projections for more ownership than Sergio Garcia at just $300 less. It feels totally insane to me, um, but here we are. He's followed by Siwoo Kim and Julian Suri, Ali Schneider, Jans, who finished second here last year, Graham McDowell, Jason Duffner, our boy Steve Stricker, who, who's perpetually underpriced and perpetually underowned. Um, I'm not sure Strick is the guy you usually think of in a birdie fest, but hey, he's one of the few guys I play that actually can putt. Uh, so I'm excited for Strick at 8,300, uh, Matthew Fitzpatrick at 8,200, Kevin Tway 8,100, and Danny Lee at 8,000. Uh, what do you think of this range outside of Stricker jumping off the page like he always does for us? I mean, I really hope Harold Varner and Siwoo Kim are like 15 to 20% owned. It's like we talked about some weird things can happen in these fields. And that's that's a weird thing to me if those ownership projections hold. Um, we're, we're not high them at all. I won't have any of those two players. Even if they were low owned, I don't think I'd have any. So that's definitely an exciting part of this range for me. Um, and it, I'm it's fine. It's a take I'm, I'm willing to die with if I end up losing to Harold Varner and Siwoo Kim. It's chalk. <laughs> um, Stricker, I like. I mean, I, one of the things we always talk about in Slack and we battle, bat it back and forth is just whether or not he actually has the upside. Um, no, like the consistency should be there. He should be able to make the cut, play the weekend, make some birdies. But can he contend? Can he finish inside the top 10 or the top five? Um, I mean, I understand like why people think that's not possible, but Davis Love III did win this event not and not like not too long ago. So if Davis Love III can win this event, I feel like Steve Stricker can put something together, and I, I hope he stays low owned because uh, I think he's uh, one of the guys I'd look to first in cash games um, to fit that balanced roster build and. I'm going to play plenty of Stricker in tournaments. I just hope the ownership stays low enough that it's it's a decent multiple of the field. Um, also, a little bit of interest with Matthew Fitzpatrick. So I think those are the kind of the first two guys that stood out to me. Uh, Jason Duffner, always a big fan of the Duff. Um, 
I mentioned he had a really strong finish here last year in strokes gained tee to green, just couldn't putt well. That's not surprising. He doesn't always putt well, but if he has that same tee to green performance and, and happens to run into a good putter, then he, he's a guy that I like as well and should carry low ownership in tournaments. Another one of those guys who's probably playing just from a, a FedEx Cup kind of security buffer. The year Davis loved the third one was 2015, and listen to this leaderboard. He beat out Jason Gore, Charles Schwartzel, Scott Brown, uh, Carl Peterson. And so you're thinking, like, like who's playing this tournament? Also in the top ten, Paul Casey, Brooks Kepka, and Tiger Woods. So like one of these like stars and scrubs types leaderboards uh, that, that we've seen at the Wyndham uh, year after year, uh, Strick obviously in the stars category can can rise up the field and hopefully uh, contend in that leaderboard. But I, like you, am interested in this low eights range, uh, kind of mid eights range. I do think the recent play uh, for Ali Schneiderjans is kind of interesting because he's been making a lot of birdies. And if it's a birdie fest, I just want the ownership number to come down. If it's double digits, I'm probably not going to play much. Um, I'll probably go to the lower guys, the Duffner, Stricker, Fitzpatrick, and kind of uh, fall there. Also, Julian Surrey was really good tee to green last week at the PGA Championship. And he's a guy that I know had really good like long-term adjusted round scores, just not on the PGA Tour. So I was like firing him at really low prices early in the PGA Tour season, and it was going disastrously. Now he's uh, 8,700. It doesn't look like ownership's going to be crazy on him by any means, but I'm kind of interested because the TD Green game was there last week, and he seems like a guy that can make a lot of birdies as well. Yeah, he's put it together at Strong Fields too. You mentioned last week the Open Championship, the Memorial, all events that he's performed well at. Um, He's going to be a, a tough one. I guess that would be maybe a guy that could end up a risky fade if I don't play him because I think the ownership will be reasonably high. We have him rated as you know a, a top 20 player in this field, um, but the ownership might be high enough that I, I look elsewhere. So that'll be, I guess, a, a challenge with... I think right now he doesn't have a good leverage score, but he does rate pretty decently in the probabilities, and it'll definitely be a little bit of a challenge, just a little bit overpriced possibly. Um, so that's probably the biggest guy I'm conflicted on in this range. Ollie, his ownership is too high, so I probably won't have any. Um, and then I think Kevin Tway, kind of in the 8,100, fits some roster constructions. You know, we, we have him projected around 65% to make the cut. Um but in general, uh, I guess Duffner, Stricker, Fitzpatrick were the guys that excite me most out of this range, and hopefully they're all reasonably low-owned. Yeah, and it seems like that that's going to be the case from early ownership projections. Uh, in, into the 7K range where there's there's a ton of names in here, but obviously this is a range that, for me, a couple names stood out just because you see like Ali Schneiderjans and Siwoo Kim and Harold Varner and Graham McDowell in the eights, and then you compare them to guys like Brennan Steele and Chris Kirk and Jamie Lovemark and Chesson Hadley. And I can't make a compelling case that those guys are so far superior to this group as golfers that they should be priced almost $1,000 more. So those guys kind of jumped off the page to me. Just when I kind of scan names by bunches, like they look more similar to the 8K guys than the 7K guys. Yeah, I'm really curious with this range to see where ownership ends up going. Right now, it's kind of everyone's projected like low-ish, but it, uh, these numbers are all going to come up by the time lock rolls around, and you, it'll come up more on a, a couple guys than the others. So kind of curious to see where that clumping happens and kind of use that to guide some of the decisions. When I first looked at the range, um, 
on paper it felt like it was pretty easy and then you started digging more into the players and you start to find all these kind of flaws and blemishes that perhaps suggest why they're priced this low uh, i think brendan Steele is a good example of that um i haven't rostered a ton of brendan Steele this year for i don't know why one reason or another it just hasn't and uh, ended up on my radar too frequently um, but he's always kind of over the past like three years been a, a steady guy that people rostered in dfs at you know the low seven thousand dollar price point now you see him in this field um in the 7k range but doesn't have any top 10 this year 10 10s this year and all of his t to green metrics have been fairly weak um i know he had good performance at the match play but it seems like he's also played a little bit of a lighter schedule. I'm not sure exactly what is going on there um, and if there could be anything, you know, buried in injury data or anything like that. Um, I think with him, I'm, it's going to kind of depend on ownership in tournaments, but there were enough kind of concerns that the excitement of cash games kind of left me once I started to dig in. I think Chris Kirk is probably the, the guy that was the easiest play to make out of the $7,000 range, which inevitably means he's going to be the most popular one as well. Yeah, and uh, one guy that projects well for us that I did not expect to project well in this range was Peter Uline, who has missed three cuts in a row, but they were you know, generally strong field tournaments. I mean, the U.S. Open, the Open Championship, Scottish Open. Um, Peter Uline has done a lot of his work on you know the Euro Tour historically, hasn't done quite as much here at home in, in the U.S., um, I don't think he'll be particularly popular because it feels like to me, like he's a guy that's usually priced in the sixes and is now shot up to the high sevens. Um, are you in on Uline this week? Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I think data golf does a really good job weighting the strokes um, in the strength of field across the different tours and put a lot of emphasis into that and the probabilities. And I think, you know, that's why Surrey projects where he does in the models and, it seems like it would be kind of crazy to trust the Surrey projection and not trust the Uline one um, for guys that don't play a ton on the PGA Tour. So Uline definitely seems like a nice play in that range. Uh, the other names in this range I thought were pretty interesting. Curious with your thoughts. It seems like both of these guys were guys that have been very trendy picks um, at different points, maybe over the past two months in DFS. I imagine Hadley, who is going to, get ownership in the end, but I don't know if Brian Gay will. And I think there are compelling reasons to be interested in both of them. Yeah, I mean, Gay's been so consistent tee to green, and he's been even hanging in at kind of longer courses um, that it is it is interesting given the price tag is really cheap at 7,100. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of interested in it. I thought you were going to mention Keith Mitchell, that when you were talking about guys who've been DFS trendy at different periods, he kind of projects like Matt to us in this range, uh, like an okay play if he's low owned, but a guy that if he got up to like 10%, he wouldn't be particularly compelling. Um, but it's weird to me, like the, 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 the guy that I know you don't want to talk about that projects well in this range is Bill Haas. And he's like, he's one of those course history guys here as well. And it doesn't look early on, like the ownership's kind of following. Uh, but Bill Haas has also been generally a shell of himself. Uh, this year after that car accident just hasn't played at the same level. What are you going to do with Bill Haas this week now that he's like cheap in a bad field? Oh, I think I just like block blocked him out of my memory. <laughs> I, like, I think I just deleted the column and my file and was like, just not worth talking to Bill Haas. Um, so 
this is a clear guy that has a big difference between the two models that Data Golf offers with the fantasy model and the probability model. Um, and if you look at his um, T20 odds, he's ranked 37th in this field. So he's still in play at at that level, but he's not uh, overweight play necessarily and doesn't really stand out in T20 odds compared to some of the guys um, that are around him. So I don't know what I'll do with Haas. I'm imagining I won't have a ton right now. Um, I think I'm more interested in Hadley and Gay. Um, I think Hadley is going to carry a fair bit of ownership when it all shakes out, but I think Gay will come through pretty low owned and he definitely is one of those guys that can get pretty hot with a putter. So um, yeah, I don't know. I've had plenty of losses with Bill Haas. It would be a a shame (laughs) if he won when I wasn't on him, but I don't think that's likely to happen. Uh, Similar similar, uh, experience with Martin Laird this year for me uh it seems like laird is always like the last piece i need to make a good team to make a cut and he's always kind of hovering around that cut line and then falters late for me this year a still pretty good price there at 7300 the guy that i'm kind of most interested in at this low range is actually johnny vegas um the game looks like it's kind of trending in the right direction it seems like he got back on uh on, on the right path on at the you know rbc canadian open where he's historically done well, um, was fine at the at the PGA Championship last week because I follow him on Twitter. He's been talking about how he feels really good about his game of late. So at 7,200, I'm kind of in on Johnny Vegas, especially at low ownership. Yeah, I, I could see that. I feel like I've been on the right side of Laird um, somehow a couple times this year. Um, maybe I've just played him a little bit more. Um, so I'm probably more inclined to play Laird than Vegas. I do agree generally that if you're building multiple lineups or in MME builds, the low 7K range is a pretty interesting one because between like 7,500 and 7,200 or 7,100, there's not a ton separating some of these golfers. So I think if the ownership ends up lower on like a pool of eight or 10 of them, you can kind of take five or 10, 10% stands on a bunch of them opposed to loading up on any one individual that kind of applies to the same way to guys that we kind of glossed over like Bronson Burgoon or Rory Sabatini. Um, and then I never really commented on Keith Mitchell. I don't think I've rostered Keith Mitchell more than once on like a main slate this year. Uh, he obviously pops because his stroke skiing T degree metrics are so strong, but when our work focuses more on adjusted scoring averages and he hasn't had you know th- that many strong events and strong fields and so he's never going to project really well and it probably is a guy that we're going to be underweight on for a good bit of time i think in some of the tracks that are a little bit more bomber heavy and i think a lot of you know people played him at the rbc canadian open um, i think i played him a bit in weekend golf and he's kind of a guy that maybe i'll save for more of that format um especially if he's going to continue to be a, a trendy pick in the dfs world we know usually below the 7K range, Colin, is not your favorite range because you are always hunting guys that have a decent chance at a T20. And usually when you get this low, you kind of don't get those guys. You get more guys that you're hoping to make the cut. Is there anybody that stands out uh, below 7K this week for you? So nobody that stood out glaringly as far as um, a single entry play, nobody that I'd play in cash games. But usually it's like a cross off the list altogether or at least this season it seemed like it's at most weeks a cross off the list altogether i think there's some playable guys this week down here if you're building 150 lineups 
um, in one of those championship pools on DK that I think you could play. Someone like Brandon Harkins is a guy that has strung together birdies in uh, multiple events this year and is a guy that I think you could look to and not have to play a lot of to be overweight in the field. Uh, I know guys like Mackenzie Hughes, Seamus Power, Alex Cheka. I think those are the kind of guys that I would be, you know, including at least in the, the player pool. I'm not sure they'd hit the final lineups. If they did, I'd probably have them capped at, at 5%, um, definitely no higher than 10%. But I think they're at least worthy of being in the pool. And, you know, some of these guys, they're inside Data Golf's made cut and top 20 probabilities. They're top 45 players in this field. So, again, not a really strong play. But if it's someone that you're just looking to, to make the cut maybe on a more top-heavy build, um, then I think that's where you can go. And again, be, because they're here, I think um, I will have some MME teams that still pay up for like a Hideki and Henrik Stenson, but uh, because there's not a clear value, like we've had some of these other weeks, a great play at 7K or something, I think that the balanced roster build is still definitely the way to go. You're not going to run it back big time with your boy Mackenzie Hughes after he uh, he won you, what, $25,000 on the CSV Air upload? Yeah, yeah, that was nice. <laughs> um, I think he, he was there. Like him and Seamus Power, I think, are in the – they'll make the cut. So I guess I should give Mackenzie Hughes the Oprah Sprinkle um, yeah, running little, forward little, instead of running little uh, personal flair on the on the MME mix. I, for that reason alone, I have to throw Sun Kang a little Oprah sprinkle at sixty nine hundred. Uh, Sun Kang, who I drafted with our last my last pick in season long in my atrocious season long league, which all the DR guys are just taking my money left and right with side bets. Um, Sun Kang at sixty nine hundred. The dude at least makes birdies, so I will have an Oprah sprinkle of Sun Kang this week for for personal uh, uh, biases. Yeah, I will say one of the things that golf lacks a little bit is um, jerseys. So, like, I, I would have bought a Mackenzie Hughes jersey if I was able to purchase one, but there's nothing you can really rock to, to support your favorite golfers for the most part unless you're buying, you know, Tiger Woods gear or something like that. So I think that's one of the things the tour needs to do a better job of is, is finding ways to create, you know, personalized shirts about some of your favorite players so I can get myself a Mackenzie Hughes player tee. There you go. Um, all right, so we've covered we've covered DraftKings for the most part. We do still have some time left. Let's kick it over to FanDuel. And I know you mentioned some of the pricing discrepancies, you know, at the top when you talked about how Shane Lowry had such a much more accommodating price tag on FanDuel than he does on DraftKings. He's actually cheaper on FanDuel in uh, absolute price, but also in relative price when you consider the field. He's at 9,800 there. Um, who are some of the guys that stood out to you on, on FanDuel? And we know FanDuel always is a place that you have the opportunity to build a little bit more stars and scrubsy because the, the pricing discrepancies seem to run a little bit wider on guys. Um, were there any other players that kind of stood out to you as big discrepancies between DraftKings and FanDuel than Shane Lowry? Lowry was definitely the first one. Um, if we're going to do FanDuel, I guess we got to give a shout out to Anita Marks. Yeah. A big 40K win for Anita. That was, that was awesome. Um, Mike must have been... I know he was doing, we do a show with Anita on Saturday mornings uh, where we come on. She does a full show and podcast. We come on just for five minutes just to talk fantasy. Sometimes we talk weekend golf. And um, Mike must have given her the goods because she gave him a big shout out, a thank you. She won 40K. Yeah, she wasn't thanking me or you. That was clear. Whatever Mike went on that show and, and gave, gave up a, as far as information, she was behind uh, Brooks Kepka and Tony Finau. Uh, finished second there for, for $40,000. 
with uh, that's a that's a huge hit over on Fanduel. So shout out to um, Anita Marks and the uh, the On the Tee Fantasy Golf Podcast uh, that we've uh, we and radio show that we've been a part of as well the last few weeks. Um, I was looking at Fanduel and the the first thing that stood out to me um, is you've got you've got Stricker at a more reasonable price tag, which I don't love. I wish I wish Strick was in the nine Ks like Shane Lowry was. Um, you've got a guy like Graham McDowell, who's priced kind of the same price that he is on DraftKings, which makes him relatively cheap on FanDuel. And then um, see, the guy who's seemingly always cheap on FanDuel for me is Jason Kokrak, but he's actually pr- priced a little bit more appropriately this week. So I really don't know what to do with myself outside of just jamming Jason Kokrak like I usually do on FanDuel. Yeah. I think one of the things that interested me, I mentioned the balance roster build in general, but um, if you do play FanDuel, um, one of the things I've noticed is that the ownership of the top end guys is typically higher than it would be on DraftKings. And so if we have like Webb projected for around 20% ownership on DK, um, it's going to get a little bit higher than that on FanDuel because sometimes it's a little bit easier to roster those guys. So it it seems like you're getting um, maybe a bit of a discount in ownership on some of those guys. Like you said, Stricker's more expensive, but you can still put together Stricker, you know, with, with, um, you know, some of these other guys. Um, some of the values we had talked about on DK are maybe not as good values on FanDuel. So Chris Kirk, for example, is 10300 and um, that's a really big discount on DraftKings. And um, it's probably a fair price on FanDuel where he's still in the pool, but not somebody that, that stands out. So I would definitely say if, if you are somebody who doesn't consume content, who doesn't have access to our fantasy projections or probabilities, um, and you want to play both sites, you definitely need to be careful about just going off of a name recommendation that someone likes on a podcast, because if they're focusing on the wrong site, it's not particularly helpful. I think Julian Surrey was one of those other guys who has a, um, you know, like we said, he's still in play on DraftKings at that price, but it seems like it's a little bit more favorable price on FanDuel. Yeah, I was looking through, you know, the top, just sorting kind of by the the value on the fantasy projections. And uh, my first reaction to FanDuel was, it looks like it's going to be a little bit tighter pricing than usual. Uh, while there are some guys like Shane Lowry that are a little bit underpriced on FanDuel relative to DraftKings. I mean, most of the good plays are up in the 10, 11K range, and there's not as many guys. Usually we got like one name kind of populating the top 15 to 20 uh, values that's in the 7k range and this week like that one name is Blaine Barber who I'm not super excited about as a punt um, then you've got a guy a bunch of guys in the like eights like Cheka and Burgoon who we talked about that were like you know high sixes low sevens on on uh, DraftKings it's a little bit dicier at the bottom end of the spectrum with so much emphasis on the six of six because of the birdie making potential um, it looks like a week to me that I might get naturally a little bit more balanced in my builds on FanDuel, which I usually don't, even if it's kind of balance-oriented weeks on DraftKings. Yeah, and they do have some nice GPPs going on over there this this week. They got that $8 with 20 k up top um, that has a much smaller field. So I know sometimes, it, I mean, it's it's always fun to play for the, the glory of the, the 100K, but... For some of us out there who haven't won a, a millionaire maker before, sometimes uh, chasing the 20K is just as good. 
Yeah, and uh, it's also uh, a little bit of a uh, slower uh, drip when <laughs> when you're going through a rut. So like you can you can win a milli like me, and then uh, try to lose a milli back in uh, chasing the milli maker again. Um, but yeah, I think one guy that I did want to mention that did stand out in the below uh, 8K range on FanDuel to me was Robert Garrigus, a guy that I think of as a birdie maker, um, a guy that is is kind of aggressive. I think he's our second best value under the 8K range. So he's one of the guys down low on FanDuel that uh, I could kind of get behind this week. But um, I I don't know. I'm I'm this Wyndham Championship because it's kind of like a putting birdie fest, I'm not quite as excited on the whole to kind of fire at that I was, you know, last week at the PGA or certainly in the FedEx Cup playoffs. Um, do you feel like, do you like manage your play based on the type of event, the type of scoring environment, the type of field, Colin? I mean, I definitely shouldn't because my two biggest weeks this year were the RBC Canadian Open and then that the Volvo China Open, the, the week that there wasn't a PGA Tour event um, that we could play in DFS, or maybe it was, I forget what was going on on tour that week. Maybe it was something different, but um, those were my five-figure scores this week. So if anything, I should be going a little bit harder in some of these events. Uh, it's definitely less exciting. It's less fun purely from an entertainment value perspective. Um, and so sometimes you end up going lighter because of that, but like the money is the same, right? Maybe there's not a million dollars to play for, but there's plenty of money to play for. And so sometimes I feel like maybe I should be focusing more and playing just as high in these, um, weaker field events as I do in some of the stronger field. It's also just a tough time of the year, right? To focus. We got all the NFL stuff coming up that we're really excited about. And then for golf, it's kind of sandwiched between the PGA championship and the FedEx cup playoffs. And so it, it feels like it's just one of those events that at least from a, a watching perspective, unless I have some good sweats, I'll probably spend a little bit less time around the TV watching golf this weekend, probably a little bit less time sweating the cut line and, and trying to stay productive because, you know, a lot of good stuff coming up in the next month. Yeah, that's that's kind of the way that I felt as well, that I wouldn't mind the breather from golf this week, from from the sweating and, and turning my attention a little bit more to our NFL projections for week one and kind of working ahead from there. Um, so that'll probably be my, my take as well. I probably uh, won't be able to, to resist firing some MME bullets on, on both sites, but certainly not playing heavy cash games like I was uh, the last few weeks. Um, that'll do it for this week's edition of Going for the Green with Daily Roto presented by uh, the Fancy Sports Network. I'm Drew Dinkmeyer, and for, for Colin Drew, I want to wish you guys all the best in all your games this week. Make sure to check out uh, the Daily Roto Twitter account, at Daily Roto, for updated news and information regarding some free trials that we'll have available for the NFL product, if you're interested in doing that. And, you know, come on over to DailyRoto.com, grab yourself a subscription, uh, join in on the Slack conversation with everybody else uh, over at Daily Roto. So that's it. 